What's most interesting thing to me about the value of diversity is it doesn't feel easy all the time. And the presence of, of diversity of people who are different than you can feel uncomfortable. It's hard. It's hard. But it's actually that feeling of it being hard that makes you get smarter and makes you come up with better solutions. Hello, hello. I welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is hopefully your favorite career podcast where you get the insights to go from motion into action and make things happen. I'm your host, Johanna Herbst. I'm a certified executive and career coach and a management consultant with an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness, and have some fun along the way. This week, it's all about what happens when women lead. We will find out why companies are financially better off if they say yes to more diversity. We will also delve into the unique resourcefulness of female-led startups, shed light on the current landscape of VC funding for women-driven ventures, and highlight some groundbreaking companies setting new standards in the business world. I have the best possible guest for this exciting topic. It's no other than Julia Borstin. Julia is the author of the book, When Women Lead, What We Achieve, Why We Succeed, and What We Can Learn. She is not only an author, but also the CNBC senior media and tech correspondent. She has been an on-air reporter for the network since 2006. She also plays a central role on CNBC's bi-coastal tech-focused program, Tech Check, delivering reporting, analysis and CEO interviews with a focus on social media and the intersection of media and technology. In 2013, Julia created and launched the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list she oversees highlighting private companies, transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. She also helped launch the network's Closing the Gap initiative, covering the people and companies closing gender and diversity gaps. She published her first book, which I told you about, When Women Lead in 2022. Julia lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons. Julia, it's so exciting to see you again. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is the magic of technology. I'm in Los Angeles, you're in Zurich, um, and it feels like we're in the room together. Yes, but here it's sunny. In your case, it's not yet. <laughs> and to get things started, I prepared a few rapid fire questions just to make sure that we get to know you a little bit. Are you ready? Sure, let's get started. In your book, you're mentioning that your boys are discussing the different superpowers. What is the superpower you want to have? I think the superpower I naturally have is being curious and mm -hmm. asking a lot of questions. And I think that's why I'm a journalist. I love to ask people questions. The great thing about it being a journalist is that most of the time people answer But I think that's my natural superpower. I think the superpower I'd like to develop and I'd like to continue to work on because superpowers are things that you can, you can build. They're not things yes. that are innate. They're things that are developed. I think that what I'd like to develop more is this idea of getting things done or, or really pushing the limits. So I have a lot of great ideas and I think sometimes I'm afraid to try them out mm. or afraid to really put them to the test. And And I think this, just this idea of not, not being so afraid would be something I'd want to develop. Love it. 
And you just mentioned that you're a journalist and I know you had two different jobs in that area. If you had not become a journalist, what is another career you might have enjoyed? To learn. I love to read. I love to write. And so I also think I would have loved to be a professor. And actually, I have to say that having done all this, this research for my book, When Women Lead, and interviewed so many entrepreneurs and investors, I actually think I would love to work as a venture capital investor because you get to see so many ideas and so many companies. And I actually think being a VC investor in many ways is very similar to my job now, where you're meeting a lot of people, interview, effectively interviewing yes. them and trying to figure out if their companies are good or not. Yeah. And I already mentioned your boys. How would your family and friends, how would they describe you in just one word? How, they would describe me as intense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I... I'm a very passionate person. I love my job. I love my kids. I love doing new things. If I'm doing a, a project with my sons, like they love to do Lego. If I'm down on the floor with them doing Lego, I'm really focused on it. And, or if I'm baking bread with them, yes. um, I would just say focused and intense. When I, when I do something, I want to do it right. And I love to just dive into something and get really involved. I hear the ambition right there. <laughs> You talk to many CEOs all day long. You have so many for your book. What is one quality that is a must-have for a successful leader? There's so many qualities. And I think actually one of the things that was so interesting for my book is realizing that there's not just one quality that's the essential one for a great leader, but the best leaders are ones who really know themselves. And I actually think that the best quality to, to have something more universal is authenticity and self-knowledge to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm good at. Here's not what I'm not good at. And here's how I'm going to bring the best of myself to this organization and surround myself with people who compliment me. So I think, you know, you have to be, you have to be a good communicator. You have to have vision, but I think at the end of the day, it can't, you're not authentic and know who you are and what you're really good at. It's going to be hard to execute as a leader. That makes a lot of sense. And what is the best advice you've been given in your personal or in your professional life? Uh, the best advice I got early in my career was to just do it, to not be afraid and to take a risk. And it was specifically advice that I got from my mentor at the time about going on television when I was a reporter at Fortune Magazine. I said, I'm not prepared for this. How can I possibly go on TV when I, I've never gone on TV before? And he said, everyone has to have their first time for everything what's the worst that can happen? And his advice is, what's the worst that can happen? Just go try it. You have to try these new things. And that was very valuable advice then. Now, I think the most valuable advice I've gotten was actually from my husband when I was writing my book, which is don't save it for the sequel. He works in the movie industry. And I was trying to figure out whether to put a story in one chapter or another. I was like, oh, maybe I save this for another book down the line. And he said, what we say in Hollywood is don't save it for the sequel You never know what's going to happen. You never know if the story's going to change, if there's not going to be a sequel. You need to sort of, it's sort of a seize the make the most of what you have in the moment. And that's advice that I don't think he even realized the sort of the bigger picture connotations of, of that advice. But for me, what I've been trying to think about is who knows if there's, you know, what, what the sequel is going to be or, or what it'll look like. Yes. What's the best way for me to make the most of the moment right now? So I think it's sort of a, a version of seize the moment in a way that's thoughtful and intentional and not assuming that you know what the future is going to be like. So we just don't know. Very true. And you just mentioned being this on-air reporter. And as such a reporter, you get makeup and hair every time. 
it's like on your free time, do you still enjoy dressing up or is that just <laughs> work? You know, I find that dressing up for TV, it's a very specific thing. And actually like the idea of shifting from my, my mom mode where wearing jeans and with my kids, I wear my hair really curly on the weekends to shifting into TV mode. Because for me, it's more like, okay, I'm shifting gears right now. And I'm going from one part of my life to another part of my life. And it enables me to sort of code shift and say, now I'm going to focus on this and not to be as distracted by the, by the obligations I may have in the back of my mind as a mom. And I actually had the same thing as when I was writing my book, I would put on, I had like a couple of favorite writing t-shirts and I would put them on and I would get my, my tea and my special cup and I would sit in my favorite writing chair and it would help me sort of shift modes and figure out how to focus. Yeah. I mentioned before that I'm really intense and love to focus, but to me, the idea is when can we create these opportunities to strip out distraction, to make sure that I don't have the list of things for the kid's birthday party that's in the back of my head. And I think for me, putting on my, my work clothes or putting on my writing clothes yeah. is a way for me to say, this is a sign that it's okay to stop worrying about the other stuff and to shift focus on what you're doing. But no, I love, I love to get dressed up, go to the Oscars every year. I think it's really fun to, to look at the fashion and to, to think about what to wear. And certainly not a fashionista. I live in Los Angeles, so there are tons of real fashionistas here, but I always find it find it sort of a fun thing. I'll, I'll look at Vogue. I'm certainly not dressing like women, but I, I always, I always look at it. Nice. And who is one of your role models? Oh, I have so many role models. I think the one that really inspired me to write the book is my, is my mother who grew up in a very different time. And I think in a lot of ways, I see her life and the way she was able to transition from having grown up in the 1950s and sixties when women did not have a lot of choices to being able to pursue a lot of options and to do what makes her happy and what she finds satisfying. Yeah. I think her evolution in a lot of ways was really inspiring to me. Uh, and, and she, so she sort of started off being told you could be a teacher or you could be a nurse and that's it. And so she chose teacher and that was the first part of her career, but then she's gone on to have so many other careers since then. She's, she's been a writer for various magazines and newspapers, a restaurant critic. She's worked for various websites. So she's worked in travel. So she's, She's done all sorts of different things. And I think for her, I saw this evolution of saying, what do, yes, I can do these jobs, but what do I really love? What, what do I bring to the table? And now she's a teacher. She's, she's teaching classes through UCLA and she's been a docent at the zoo. She's just had so many adventures. And I think realizing that we can, again, be authentic and not just feel constrained by the societal expectations is something I saw her pursue and I also wondered what would have happened if she had grown up in a different time. My mom could have been a CEO if she had grown up in a different era. And I want all women to have that sort of liberation from those social expectations. I didn't grow up thinking I had the option of being a CEO. I didn't any role models of female leaders. My mom definitely didn't. So I think the more we can think about breaking free from those constrictions that certainly constrain my mom, and to a certain extent, me too, I think the better that is for everyone. So true. It's like, see it to believe it. But before we jump in, I have one more question for the rapid fire. What is one thing that people often get wrong about you? Um, what do they get wrong about me? Maybe that I'm, I think if they only see me on TV, I think they get wrong about me is that I'm very serious. Whereas in fact, because <laughs> on TV, I'm, you know, it's live television. People are you yelling, to, time right? is in the air. Very serious. I, I always do my homework. I'm very well prepared. But but that's only part of my personality. And I think 
And again, you know, it's like we all have these different parts of ourselves. But, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a friend, I'm a wife, and I don't take myself too seriously. The joke, the joke in our family is that I don't, I'm, I'm funny because of physical dropping things. I'm stripping over myself, more sort of Lucille Ball type humor. So I'm also, I'm very klutzy. That's a thing people may not know about me. And uh, now we heard bits and pieces about you. We heard a little bit about your mom, about your sons. But I'm so curious to learn more about the milestones that led you to where you are today. Would you mind sharing them? My career started when I was 21 years old as a reporter for a Fortune magazine. And that was a turning point in my life. The reality is that was just a, a stroke of luck. I happened to graduate college in, in June of 2000. And I had actually secured this job at Fortune Magazine a couple months earlier, right before the stock market really started to plummet. Yeah. So I got this moment, this job at a moment in time when people were still hiring the magazine industry. And that was a really remarkable stroke of luck for me. So that was a milestone getting that job. I was the youngest person hired by Fortune Magazine. I was 21. And I got hired into effectively an apprentice, apprenticeship position where I could learn from all these amazing journalists and learn about business news. Other real milestone for me was when my mentor said, you should try going on TV. There's an opportunity. Just do it. Don't yes. be so afraid. And that was a key turning point. And then I would say there are other milestones and articles I wrote and, and experiences I had doing interviews that made me realize I really love business news. I didn't think I was going to stay a business reporter. I thought I was going to go to grad school and study international relations. But when I thought this is something I really love or the TV stuff is something I'm pretty good at, I think that helped me find my way to CNBC. So then the other milestone was starting as a reporter on CNBC. And then I think in my career at CNBC, there was a moment that helped me define what my position is um, at CNBC, which is, which is a real focus on technology. And that was in covering the Facebook IPO and then, and then pitching to my bosses that we should do a list that is now the Disruptor 50 list. And we've done it for 11 years now. And that I think everyone can be entrepreneurial. I, my book is largely about entrepreneurs. But what I truly believe is that we can all be entrepreneurial in our own ways. And people who are happiest are those who find the things that they really love. And they pursue them either by creating them or by doing them within a structure. And for me, I love my, my job because I've been able to be entrepreneurial within my, my company. And so... I was covering the Facebook IPO and I thought, you know, we need to have our viewers be aware of what these companies are like Facebook long before they go public. We need to figure out how to cover these companies in such a way that we're, we're educating our viewers about the tech trends, about the underlying technologies, about how our society is going to change because of technology. Yes. And so I went to my boss and I said, hey, you know, this Facebook IPO has been an amazing journey to cover this. It's a crazy story. But why don't we do this before these companies go public? Let's create a system where we're tracking and reporting on and aggregating the most important private companies long before they go public. And I also pitched maybe 10 other ideas in the same meeting. But this one, he's like, you're right. That's a good idea. Let's do that. And 11 years later, we have this institution that is the Disruptor 50. And so for me, that decision not to be afraid, it goes back to the best advice I ever got. Don't yeah. be afraid. Just pitch the thing. Try the thing. Don't save it for later. That led me to have this project that I really love doing and I find so gratifying. And I think it all comes down to like, what is the thing you love to do? Be honest, honest, authentic to yourself and then finding a way to pursue it. 
And the book you wrote is called When Women Lead. Should our male listeners now tune out and stop listening or not at miss all. this book? Not at all. So this book, When Women Lead, originally I wrote it in a lot of ways for the men who I know, the, the, the men who watch CNBC. I wrote, wrote it for them to read just as much as I wrote it for women to read. And I actually didn't want the word woman on the title of the book. I didn't want woman on the cover and I remember going back and forth with my, my editors saying, well, I want men to read this book. They need to understand how they should be leading differently. And she said, <laughs> she said, we still need women in the title because the book is about women. But, but this, there was this big debate because I think it's really important that men read this book um, as well as women. I mean, the reality is, is that women will find this book inspiring. They will find a lot of the data and resonates with them. Oh, gee, that's something that I've experienced myself. Or, oh, I could see... I could see myself yes, in that, very in that leader, very relatable. But for men, what I hope it does is say, hey, these people are succeeding by leading in a way that's totally different than the stereotype of how leaders have to act and behave. And I, as a leader, I, as a man, will be more successful, A, if I lead more like these women, and B, if I understand the value of investing in women, of having female executives around me, and really investing in in diversity. And so I think there's a real yes. financial opportunity for men, as well as a personal development opportunity to take a page from and to really learn from the women I profile in the book. When we first spoke, I told you that it's like years ago, I did my own startup here in Switzerland. And then I found that there were so few female founders and it really bothered me. I reached out to women who got VC funding. I called up CEOs here and asked them, what are you doing for the women? This is not right. I went on stage for conferences. So that was really something that was triggering me. So this book brought a lot of emotions back. <laughs> so it really had a lot of meaning for me. So I found this very, very powerful. And you are quoting this figure about the VC funding. It's like the women get probably like the latest one is different, but I think yeah. like six, six and a half percent get funding and they get 2% of the cake. Yes. Yes. So that's like, actually, I think with journalists, there's always a question that that's a question that, that sparks a story. Right. And for me, the reason I wanted to write this book is because of that number. There was this number that kept on coming up and that female founders at the time were getting about three, when I started working in the book, we're yes. getting about 3% of all venture capital funding. And I kept on thinking 3%, that is a teeny tiny it's number. Nothing. It's nothing. How is it possible? Women are getting 3% of all venture capital funding. So that number was striking, but seemed more absurd given all the other research I was seeing as a reporter at CNBC about how female-led companies tend to outperform companies with diverse management. They perform better whether they're private or public. Female-led companies go, go public or yes. sell a year earlier on average. Their returns are higher. There was all this data that showed me why that 3% number didn't make sense. So what I wanted to do in this book is to explain how the people who had defied those odds were exceptional and, and really why that 3% number shouldn't be the case anymore. And so that number actually was the, was, the, was the thing that really sparked my interest in writing this book. And I figured if I could explain why it was irrational to 3% number hold true, then I might illuminate something for people on both sides of the equation. It might help women help navigate challenges and bias, and it might help men who control the capital yes. understand why they're missing out. It's not, I'm not blaming them. I'm not, not accusing them of anything. I'm just saying you're actually missing out if you're not seeing the full picture of what you could be investing in. 
I mean, need that changes now as a society because those companies they they become big organizations and they employ the founders of the next generation. And if that is all men, there's a ripple effect right there. So I feel there's a responsibility on all those sides to open the doors and let the minorities, let the women in and really benefit from that. There's a responsibility, but I don't think that people will do things just because it's the right thing to do. I think no. people do things that they see a financial motivation for. And my argument is don't yes. do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because you'll be more financially successful because of it. But so ultimately for my book, When Women Lead, I interviewed 120, 120 women. I read 300 academic studies. I incorporate 60 stories in the book and a ton, and most of those academic studies in the book. But really what I'm trying to do is tell the stories of how people can defy the odds. And the reason why I chose to focus largely on technology, the books are not all about the startup space or tech space, but I think it's important to tell a lot of those tech stories because Technology is incredibly powerful in our lives. It, these startups have the potential not just to make someone a lot of money, but also change the way we all live. I mean, think about every yes. app on our telephone, the way we travel, the way we, the way we go on vacation with Airbnb, get around a city with Uber or Lyft. I mean, tech companies are transformative. They talk about Facebook that we just were talking about earlier. So there's this transformative effect of tech companies, but also that it's true that if you are part of a tech company at the very early stages, either as a founder or an early employee, you have the potential to make so much money that you will become an investor for the next generation. So there's, it's very important to acknowledge that if you're, if you're one of these people who are going to make $100 million from a tech startup, that is, that is not just generational yes. wealth for you, but enables you to pick the startups that are going to be able to succeed. Because then you could write a check as an angel investor and set up the next generation of startups to grow. And the one thing I know is very natural that we tend to people that are similar to us. So if somebody went to Harvard, they might go to somebody that looks like them 20 years younger. So me as a female, I also tend to favor women sometimes. Like if I have to pick, I would go with yeah. a woman because I can relate. So I know that's very natural. The problem is just that the decision makers, we don't have quality there. It's unconscious bias, but there's also this yes. concept of pattern matching. I actually didn't use the word unconscious bias much in the book because I feel like it's just so overused that we've stopped to even know and even think about what it really means. But there is this instinct to, to gravitate towards people like yourselves. There's nothing malicious about that. That's the other thing is I want to remove the, the concept of mouth no. here. Of course, and I see it all the time. I've seen it my whole career where the men feel comfortable with people like them and women tend to feel comfortable with people like them. But as a result, if you don't embrace the discomfort of being around people who are different than you, then you're missing out on a huge opportunity. So I think there's just that the ease of being around people who are like you. And for a lot of investors, if they're going to be spending a lot of time with a the founder, they want to be with someone who they like and they like hanging out with and they can, they can chat with when they're in between business conversations. But then there's this also this idea of pattern matching when you're making judgments about other people. And uh, there's so much research that I found really powerful and sometimes even surprising about the way people are, are making pattern, generating decisions based on patterns. So if you're an investor, you're looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg. You understand that someone who looked and sounded like Mark Zuckerberg has not only been successful with Facebook, now Meta, but that type of person has been successful over and over. So you say, I have a pattern in my head what a successful VC founder looks like without any malice, 
you're trying to figure out who else you could fit into that pattern. So if someone shows up who's a woman, who's a woman of color, and you haven't seen a lot of women of color who are successful tech founders, you're going to say, huh, she doesn't fit into any pattern. She doesn't look like what a, what a CEO looks like. And then these, these patterns are perpetuated. So women of color draw far less than 1% of all VC dollars. And that's in part because the investors can't, can't fit these new um, entrepreneurs into, into patterns that they're familiar with. So the answer is, is to try to acknowledge these biases and break free from the patterns. Not every founder is going to look like the founder that came before, but it's a very human instinct to try to fit people into these patterns that you're familiar with. And there was one thing that you shared in the book. There was a situation where you asked, would you have given the same feedback to a man? And I like that if you are faced with something that could be unconscious bias, just ask this kind of questions because the other person might have a light bulb moment because they will not notice. They don't do it with a malicious mindset or anything, but that story, it resonated with me. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think it's in order to be productive, which is my goal, I think it's really important to remove any assumption of malice. And the number of times people have said that something to me in my career where I was like, oh my gosh, I must've done something wrong. This guy thinks I'm an idiot. What did I say to make him think that I... And I assumed it was my fault or I assumed someone was hated me or it was their malice or my fault is it is a real waste of time at the end of the day. Yes. And for me to have all this research, to have read these 300 academic studies, because of that research, I could say, hey, this isn't about me. This isn't even about him. This is about his assumptions that he's learned after a career in a male-dominated business world. That enabled me not to take something so personally, which was really liberating. Great. Not my fault. Not my problem. And it also helped me figure out how to navigate it. So if someone gave me, made a comment that was inappropriate or not, or, or biased or just seemed yes. totally irrelevant, instead of spiraling and wasting 10 minutes or an hour of my day worrying about it, I could say, hey, this really isn't about me. And sometimes I would say, I don't think you would have given the same, would you have said the same thing if it was one of my male colleagues? And, and hopefully in the next couple of years, women won't have to say that so often, but I think if you're armed with data and armed with information, then you could be better, better equipped to navigate any situation, no matter how, how normal or how out of left field. And you're mentioning data and we already spoiled it, that companies are better off if they cherish diversity. Do you have so any numbers that you can share? Well, there's so many statistics about how female led companies tend to outperform, whether it's at the private company level or public companies. But there's also a lot of data about how racial diversity as well also brings better results. One reason why, because I think that a lot of people are like, oh, this is this makes sense. Diverse perspectives bring new solutions. I think one reason why that people overlook that is very, very important that some great research and studies found in my book was this idea that diversity is valuable, not just in that it brings outside perspectives, but that the presence of outsiders, the presence of outside perspectives encourages everyone in the room originally, the original homogenous group, to effectively get smarter, to raise the level of their game. And I think that's the piece about diversity yes. that should really encourage the, the people in positions of power to say, I will get smarter if I have people who are unlike me, around me. And there's a study in the book that I really loved. Um, the one about the fraternity brothers and sorority yes. sisters. Do you remember that one? Because to me, this study, and I encourage everyone to read this study, it's so interesting. It really encapsulates the true value of diversity. 
it's not because someone new brings a new solution to a problem. It's because everyone else in the room says, hey, this person's not like me. I better really think about my assumptions. I can't assume that everyone around me shares the same perspective, the same language, the same the same value system. I need to make sure I really know what I'm talking about. And then everyone in the room gets smarter. But the most interesting thing to me about the value of diversity is it doesn't feel easy all the time. And the presence of, of diversity of people who are different than you can feel uncomfortable. It's hard. It's hard. But it's actually that feeling of it being hard that makes you get smarter and makes you come up with better solutions to problems. So to me, that was that study was a was a revelation. And there are other studies like that that really um, articulate the game-changing value yeah. of diversity. And also having something that feels uncomfortable is okay. It's okay. It's okay to lean into that discomfort to say, why does this feel uncomfortable for me? It's a lot easier to surround yourself with people just like you all the time, have conversations about everything you know you're going to agree on. But being forced to reconcile with people who are different than you, different backgrounds, different perspectives, they may have a really good argument for something that's in disagreement with you. I think that discomfort is something that makes companies more successful. And I write about a couple female founders in the book, female CEOs in the book, who figured out how to build that discomfort into decision-making. A woman named Deidre Packnad, who she has a software that's a help companies manage their, their workflow. And she's all about tackling the hard problems first. She said, there's so much research showing that in meetings, people save the things that are not working until last. No one wants to talk about what's failing. No one wants to talk about what's working. But she said, we're, we're destigmatizing it. We're talking about failure. We're talking about uncomfortable things. If you just destigmatize it, as a company, you could really dig in to the challenging stuff and make more progress if you're not so afraid to talk about the hard stuff. And there's one more thought about why diversity really helps. I mean, it's like women are so often the decision makers for purchases. So if I, as a company, I produce a product that has been partially been designed by the person that will buy my product, I guarantee it will be better suited for that person. So I think there's yeah. just some logic, like some logic right there. Oh yeah. So there's this whole concept of proximity to a problem. Um, uh, there was an investor I interviewed for the book named Frida Kapor Klein, and she talked about how the founders that have proximity to a problem are going to be better equipped to solve it. If you are working on a, a femtech company, a company that's focused on women's health, you may have a different perspective about what it's going to take to be effective to have a femtech company because you understand the consumer in a different way than a man would. It doesn't mean that a man wouldn't be a helpful uh, part of the process, but it's essential to involve people who are close to the problem in decision-making. And if you think about the fact that not only are women half of the population, but they compose 80% of all purchasing decisions. So at least the latest data I've seen is that women make 80% of purchasing decisions, whether it's cars or, or washing machines or big ticket items, if women are making those decisions, or even in healthcare for their families, women are making those healthcare decisions. It's really important to involve those female perspectives. If you're a company and you have a product that's not just serving white men, you're going to want to make yes. sure people who are not just white men are involved involved in building those solutions for them. And there's one other question I have to throw in there. I mean, it's not really related to that. It's like you were interviewing so many people and you were throwing around so many names, the VCs here, the entrepreneurs there. How do you manage to... to to remember all those names. That was one thing I was just asking myself the whole time. So I, look, I worked on this project for a very long time. I, I wrote it during the pandemic. And so that was a real gift for me. And that, especially when I was doing the, the interviews the first six months, 
everyone was around. No one had other plans. Everyone had canceled all their plans. So I could have access to all these people. I could say, hey, can you give me an hour on Zoom? So I think it, it really enabled me to have access to people. But I have lots of spreadsheets, Google Docs. I have these giant poster boards with names and lists of people. But this became my, you know, it, it's my passion project. Again, very intense and passionate about it. But these people became these these characters in my life where I feel like, you know, it was funny, a number of them I didn't meet in person until after the book came out because I've been written, written it during the pandemic. And I feel like I knew them so well. So a lot of Google Docs keeping track of names and stories. <laughs> but, you know, it's the more you get, it's like friends, you know, you get to know people, you're not going to forget the story of, of, of a friend you made, even if it was 10 years ago. So it really... It became sort of a, a web of characters that I that I brought together for the stories in the book. But then I feel better now that I know that they are spreadsheets because I was yeah. like so impressed. Lots I was like, how does she yeah. do that? And I mean, there's one other aspect I really, really enjoyed about the book. It's like you are giving the backstories on how the startups have been founded, like how the ladies came up with the ideas. And also it's like, what are the latest startups? So I think it's just also if somebody is curious to find out more about the latest startups, it's a book to really read just for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I wanted to showcase companies that were really cool. And again, I was spending a lot of time with these stories as, a, as the writer, and I wanted to find stories that I found very inspiring, but also relatable. And then also I had companies that I thought were important. I mean, the the, the point of this, this focus on on, on the future of business and the way that I love to focus on technology is because these are companies that are transforming, whether it's healthcare or retail, or even the way people work in their offices. And so I wanted to showcase a really diverse assortment, not just of women, but also the types of companies yes. they were founding. So, I mean, I love companies in the environmental space. There's a company that I write about called Ketos that's focused on water safety and, and, minimizing water loss. And it sounds, it sounds like it wouldn't be an exciting company, but her story is phenomenal. She was, she was trapped in Tibet after an avalanche and an earthquake and her story is amazing. So she's just a phenomenally inspiring story, but the work she's doing is really important for people's health and environmental safety. Another company called Full Harvest is minimizing loss, agriculture loss, and there's huge amount of waste in the agriculture business. And she's figuring out how to take, how to take food that otherwise would have been thrown away and turning it in to whether it's juices or crackers or, or, or valuable food. So she's doing something that's profitable, but also at the same time having a positive impact on the environment. And that was another thing I noticed. There was really this, this dominant trend of female-led companies are more likely to have an additional purpose beyond just generating profits. And I found those companies really interesting. So when I was reading your book, The one thing, the one word that was screaming at me was resourcefulness again and again and again. And obviously they don't have as much money, but what is the magic of the resourcefulness? Because I know it drives creativity. Yes, there's a phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And I originally wanted to title my book, The Mother of Invention. And this idea that that was my working title until close to the end, but there There's this idea that when you have less access to resources, you have to be more creative. You have to be more purposeful. Obviously, I hope we get to a place where men and women have equal access to capital and equal access to resources. There's no question that having less access to resources has really pushed the women who have managed to succeed to be more innovative about how they were using the resources that they have. 
Wow. The time is flying. One last question on this for our audience. So for everybody and anybody who's feeling inspired, is there anything coming to mind that we can do to really potentially support females in the workplace? I think we all need to think about our own leadership potential and to break free from the stereotype. Break free from the stereotype is leadership being a traditionally male thing with um, sort of top-down, agentic leadership. Then for organizations, I think it's really important to rely on the data to make sure that they are using data, generating data about who's getting promoted, who's getting hired, who's getting pay raises, to make sure that there isn't bias that's creeping into that. And I really believe in the power of numbers. And I think sometimes people assume they're doing the right thing, assume that they're not biased, but everyone has some sort of some sort of bias that impacts the way they work. So I think more than anything, companies need to be thinking about how are we putting these groups together? Are we making sure everyone's getting a voice? What do we need to do to make sure that bias doesn't creep in? And in that approach, we're going to be surfacing and elevating more underrepresented voices, female and otherwise. Perfect. Perfect. And I only have three short questions left. What is coming up next for you? You know, when I was working on this book, I was sure I was going to be ready to write another one when, when this one was out. I do really love writing and reporting books, but the process of talking about this book and being on book tour, talking to people like you, talking to women in the workplace in a range of different industries has really made me understand that there's a lot more work to be done around this book. And I really believe that women around the world need to have the tools to help navigate a workplace that is not equitable. And they need to have the data to empower them to manage challenging situations and to help close gender gaps. So right now I'm just working to get this book into the world to hopefully, hopefully encourage more people to read it and for women, for them to have the tools to, to address challenges, the inspiration to understand that there yes. are plenty of people like them that have succeeded. And then for men, for men to understand that they will be more successful if they support more women too. So instead of rushing off to write my next book, which is what I was sure I was going to do, I'm really just working on, on supporting the messages of this book and getting them out there. I love it. And the two of us, we got introduced through Liz Elting when I had her on. So now the question to you, who else should I have on? Oh, there are so many amazing women who are doing great work. I don't even know where to start, but I would say Eve Rodsky is an amazing writer. She wrote a book called Fair Play and another one called Unicorn Space. And her work is really about personal development. And also at Fair Play is really about the value of equitably dividing responsibilities within the home, including what, what's called invisible labor, the invisible work of me having to remember yes. to buy birthday presents for my, for my kid's friend. And so I think she's also done amazing work there, but also this idea of unicorn space that we all benefit from having a creative project that is separate from our core Job. So I find her stuff really interesting. And I also I would give a shout out to my friend, Jessica Yellen, who's a journalist. She used to be chief White House correspondent for CNN. Now she runs a platform called News Not Noise. And I think she does a great job with her newsletter and content on, um, on Instagram of just giving real straight news, no opinion breaking down complicated issues. And I think they're both awesome, phenomenal. Oh, perfect, perfect. And for everybody who is inspired, they should obviously buy a book, When Women Lead, and it's really good. So I loved it. And so I have to say, I also, I recorded the audiobook version myself and I won an award for the best business audiobook recording. So if you'd rather listen to an audiobook, you can also buy that version. <laughs> listen to me tell you. So there's no excuse. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> book and also, yes, by When Women Lead. And it's also a great gift for a woman starting a new chapter or for a man who could use to be educated on some of these issues. Or for anybody who's thinking about launching a startup, because this book, it gives really good ideas also just for that purpose. Yes, absolutely. It's really good. And it's so factual. So I love it. Okay, people need to buy this book. How else can they stay in touch with you? Well, you can follow me on all the different platforms. I'm on LinkedIn, Julia Borston. You can follow me on Instagram, also Julia Borston. On Twitter, Jay Borston. So you can follow me on all those platforms. I have a website, juliaborston.com. And you can watch me on CNBC, where, where I am on pretty much every day. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know the news is waiting for you. Thank you so much for carving out the time. This was so inspirational. And thank you for doing this work. It's really important. Thank you so much for having me and all your work as well. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If somebody comes to mind who could benefit from learning more about what happens when women lead, please help me spread the word and forward the episode to that person. You can also help me by leaving a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify, preferably with five stars and a nice comment. And yes, if you have not yet hit the subscribe button, why not do so now? One click and you will get the next episode in your inbox when it drops on Tuesday. With that, we are done for today. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.